VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. We've got another great show for you this week. We do it every week. We're very nimble. This week, we're going to really tackle a a huge issue. Some weeks on Go Green Radio, we talk about things like green cleaning products for your home, and that's important. But today, we're going all the way to the heart and soul of one of the greatest geopolitical situations we have to face in the 21st century, and that is energy. Do we have enough Where will we get more? And we've got a great guest coming on the show today. I'm really excited to have her. But for those of you out there listening to Go Green Radio who wonder, is there enough energy for everybody in the world to live like Americans, uh, to drive the way we do, transport goods the way that we do, light our homes and and pump clean water to our taps, um, this is a big issue. And it's something that our new president, something that the U.N. um, and, and leaders of the 21st century, whether they're local water board officials, all the way up to UN officials are going to be dealing with. And, and we're talking about this on Go Green Radio today. You know, a lot of us in the U.S. are trying really hard to go green. We're trying to reduce, reuse, and recycle. We try to use less gasoline and, you know, use fuel-efficient cars. Um, I've even changed my light bulbs to CFLs, and I know a lot of people have as well. But even with these efforts, if we reduce the kind of in, in the amount of energy that we use and we multiply the amount of energy that we use per American, by the world's population, do we have enough? You know, right now there are 1.6 billion people worldwide who don't even have electricity. So what does that mean in terms of the geopolitical situation that we face in the 21st century for people who want to live a better life, want to live like we do in Americans? Are we going to be able to meet that need? So today I'm happy to bring on our guest, Susan Meredith. She's the author of a new book called Beyond Light Bulbs. Lighting the Way to a Smarter Energy Management. Susan, I'm glad to have you on Go Green Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jill. I found your book that that I just mentioned, Beyond Light Bulbs, uh, a really fascinating read. And I would have been fascinated regardless of the topic, just simply because you are a fellow alumna of the University of Illinois, Go Illinois and I. (laughs) But uh, I'm hoping that that others, after our discussion today, will pick it up and read it as well. So before we launch into some of the hard-hitting topics that you cover in the book, tell our listeners who are obviously listening online on voiceamerica.com where they can check out your website and where they can get a hold of your book. Maybe they can be looking at that while they're listening to us online. Yes, it's beyondlightbulbs.com. Great. That's pretty easy, folks. So if you check out beyondlightbulbs.com, you're going to see the book that we're going to be referring to today. Now, Susan, here in the U.S., we're being told to conserve energy every day as though we're running out, like there's a shortage. And people talk about that, that maybe there isn't enough energy. But even still, we read about China and India and other developing countries continuing to consume more energy And I think that leads some Americans to believe that we're saving energy so other countries can consume it. What are your thoughts on that? Do we have an energy shortage in the world, Susan? No. uh, Well, the way I look at it is everything in the world is made up of energy. So, no, we we certainly don't uh, have a a shortage. And the real problem is getting the energy into the right form at the right time and, you know, the right place. 
So we really just have to look at changing it at the you know changing the energy to the forms we want it. Well, and you bring up an inter- interesting point. I mean, you have an engineering background, and some of our guests do, and some of our our listeners don't. Tell us what the formal definition is of energy and why you believe that there isn't an energy shortage based on that definition. Well, well, energy is, uh, you know, everybody knows probably Einstein's E equal MC squared. Energy, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about that, um, for somebody who is technical, maybe kind of finds it interesting, but um, energy, we think of it as um Energy comes from mass, you know, energy comes from matter. But it's really the other way around is that uh, Einstein's original equation was M equal E over C squared, meaning matter comes from energy. And, you know, if if we put a lot of energy into something, we can create something in the physical world is basically kind of what it means essentially. So, you know, anything that is in the physical world is made of energy. And it's a matter of getting that into a useful form. And we're going to talk about a variety of different ways that, Either we are currently using energy, transporting energy, um, and, and how, how we might do better in the 21st century, what some opportunities are. Let's, let's begin with this concept of peak oil. Some of our Go Green Radio audience might not be familiar with that concept. Talk to us about what peak oil means, Susan. Well, oil is considered a non-renewable resource. It basically comes from fossil fuels, so dinosaurs is, uh, you know, what we put in our, our cars to drive around. And it's, it, technically it's, you know, it's, it is renewable because it can be renewed in millions of years, but basically it's something that can't be replenished in our lifetime, lifetime. So there's a finite amount underground. So if you think about peak oil, it's saying that every day we extract some, and if the demand goes up, we extract more every day. And at some point, that's going to exceed it. And if you think of it kind of like, you know, as a huge, like, overwhelming supply of marbles, millions and billions of marbles, and you take out two each day, well, it seems like it'll last forever. But if you start taking 20 a day, you know, still probably, you know, you're not going to see much difference. When you start taking 200, 2,000, 20,000, two, you know, 2 million, you know, marbles a day, then it's really going to show a dent. And that's kind of like what's happening here is that as we keep taking more marbles, more oil out every day, there comes a point where we can't keep doing that. Right. And what's the geopolitical ramification of that? I mean, you know, I know that we hear about oil reserves in the Middle East, and I guess we kind of take the word for it that that's really there. But uh, geopolitically, when you're looking at developing countries and our current oil usage, uh, what are the ramifications of this concept of peak oil, that at some point we're going to reach the pinnacle of what we can extract from the ground before we really start depleting this finite resource? Well, it's supply and demand, you know, the old things about economics, that if uh, if the demand is a lot higher than the supply, the price goes way up. And uh, scarcity, I mean, people will be, you know, really trying to get it, and, uh, you know, that can cause all kinds of problems if, uh, you know, scarcity is not a good thing. So we need to find other alternatives because oil isn't the magic thing, you know, for, you know, it's one form of energy and it has some good qualities about it. But, um, you know, we should be able to get get to a point where we're using the oil at a level that is sustainable. And, you know, a lot of people talk about sustainability and using oil in such a way that it's sustainable. Explain what you mean by that. Well, back to the marbles. If you go down to 20 a day and, you know, the earth is, you know, you're refilling it at 20 a day, 
then you've always got enough. There's no problem with that. So, I mean, always the, you know, we are, there is uh, something happening that's going to be creating more, um, more uh, oil at some point. Like I say, it takes millions of years, but I mean, there is something happening that's doing that. But if we're taking it out at a rate that can be created or put back in of any kind of energy, then it's sustainable. Well, and you know, we talk about reducing our you know, demand for oil, and we know that most of our oil use comes from transportation, but the fact is, even if we all started biking and walking tomorrow, that wouldn't make us an oil-free economy, would it? I mean, there are other products that we use every day that are petroleum-based. True. Transportation is the biggest factor. There's no doubt if we want to solve our dependence on foreign oil, we have to address transportation, motor gas for cars, diesel for big trucks, jet fuels, etc. But there are a whole bunch of other things that say we can't get rid of our dependence on oil completely, probably, unless we also uh, asphalt, for instance. You know, all of our roads, you know, have oil, uh, you know, asphalt comes from oil. Plastics, all the plastic bags you use at the grocery stores and all the plastic toys and plastic everything. Cosmetics, fertilizers, and, of course, lubricating oils for machines. There's lots of things that use oil. And so... You know, if you think about that, we are dependent on foreign oil. Well, if we can get rid of our dependence on foreign oil, we still will have a need for the domestic oil companies, and there's actually a benefit. Um, get really, motor gas, gasoline is the most refined product. If, uh, if we can get rid of our dependence on uh, motor gas, the, uh, the, the quality of the oil doesn't have to be as good, you know, because, you know, as, asphalt, and you can kind of even imagine that, asphalt and plastics and so on, are a less refined product, so you could possibly use less expensive grades of oil. And still, we're going to need that, but that might be good for the oil companies even to be more profitable, which, you know, some people think that's a terrible thing, but it's good for our economy. So, you know, um, you know, we, we want our economy to be good, and that's sure. part of it. Well, especially if, if some of that profitability goes into some of the technologies we're going to talk about, the research and development of some of the technologies we're going to be talking about later in the show, um, now, talking about transportation, you mentioned quite a bit about electric cars. You talk about the, the pros and cons of electric cars in your book. Um, talk to our reader, or our listeners about your views and what you've uncovered about electric cars, plug-and-play kind of thing. Well, there's three main components to deal with with transportation. The vehicle itself, of course, we you know have to have the, the vehicle... Um, you know, to transport us, whether it be a, a train or a, a car or a bike. Um, and then the, replen- the replenishable energy source, like if it's on a bike, it's your human energy, but, I mean, right. for vehicles we're talking about, it's, it's uh, generally, um, the oil, you know, gasoline, motor gas, or it could be electricity or hydrogen or whatever. So there's some replenishable energy source that gets used up. And then also you've got to have the infrastructure to refuel or re-energize the vehicle. Which currently we do with electric cars because we have we have plug-ins everywhere. <laughs> but exactly. hydrogen, I know, is a separate issue. But in terms of electric cars, there there was even a movie about who killed the electric car. Or wasn't that Sony Pictures uh, that, yeah. that put out that movie? And a lot of folks are asking, why do we have electric cars? So in the we have about a minute till break, and we might have to cover this a little bit more in detail after the break. <laughs> Tell us, you know, what you believe about electric vehicles. Well, electric vehicles, I think, are great because they are a, a great um, medium for 
electricity is a secondary energy source, so it comes from other things, wind and oil and coal and, you know, solar and nuclear and whatever. And it can also be converted to all kinds of different purposes. And we already have a framework in place, so it's great. The problem with electric cars is they take a while to recharge. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be out and about and run out of, uh, you know, energy uh, of whatever form, you know, get stuck without, uh, you know, your, your electricity and have to right. charge it for a couple hours. So that's the downside. But that's why, you know, the, the hybrids make a lot of sense, plug-in plug in hybrids. Well, and we're really going to talk more about, about yeah. these various forms of, you know, d- different vehicles, different fuels, when we come back after this break. So, folks, don't go away. And if you've got questions for Susan on about anything about this energy issue that we're talking about, please don't be afraid to call in. It's 1-866-472-5788. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Now, Mrs. Johnson, before we close on your mortgage loan, I want to make sure you remember Mike. Hi. You can trust me. I'm African-American, just like you. So here's the low monthly payments and interest rates we promised, and here's where they triple. The rest of this stuff is just here to make sure that we get your house when you can't pay us back. What a lovely house. Predatory lenders are never this easy to spot. Call us at 866-222-FAIR and protect yourself with the facts. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance and the Ad Council. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. Ah! 
There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to more Go Green Radio, folks. I am getting emails like nobody's business. Before the break, we were talking to Susan Meredith. She's going to be with us for the entire hour. She's the author of Beyond Light Bulbs, Lighting the Way to Smarter Energy Management. And if you want to pick up that book, go to www.beyondlightbulbs.com. We were talking about electric cars, and we just began to scratch the surface of that issue because we're talking about peak oil, how our energy consumption, our oil consumption, almost 50% of that comes from transportation. So we started talking about alternatives to oil-fueled cars, and we were talking about electric cars. And I got a bunch of emails saying, well, are we going to have to build nuclear plants? Where are we going to get all that electricity? Folks, we are going to be talking about that. Susan Meredith is going to be with us for the whole hour. And I'm going to be asking her things like, do we need to build nuclear plants in third-world countries in order to get them clean water without polluting the air? We're going to talk about carbon offset programs. Are they real or just one more way to greenwash our conscience when we pollute? Uh, I also love this, this comment that Susan makes at the beginning of one of her chapters talking about, is there global warming? Are humans causing it? Who cares? We're going to be talking to her about all those things. So don't go away. We have got a, an action-packed show for you today on Go Green Radio. Susan, welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am so glad to have a fellow alumna of the University of Illinois on my show today. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Well, we were talking about electric cars um, and some of the pros and cons. Obviously, electricity is one of those energy sources that comes from a variety of places, the majority of which in most countries is from fossil fuel-fired plants. Um, And everybody knows that's a carbon-emitting situation. So, you know, we do have some issues to talk about in terms of the downside of electric cars. Not only uh, have we not figured out a way just yet to make sure they don't peter out in the middle of us running our errands. They're they're kind of short-term and they take a long time to recharge. Um, But we're going to talk about where we get enough electricity to even talk about that as a viable alternative to petroleum-based vehicles. But I want to talk about some other alternative fuels for transportation before we get into where's all that electricity coming from. You've done a lot of research on hydrogen vehicles. Share with our Go Green radio audience um, your insights about the pros and cons of hydrogen-fueled vehicles. Yes. It's, it's interesting where this book really kind of originated from was I went back in my later years for an MBA at the University of Texas, and long story short, we had a, a project, a week-long project, 80 MBA students working and competing for a $1,000 prize uh, on how to move to the hydrogen economy. And so there was a lot of good brain power that went into that, and it kind of was the, something that really sparked my interest in, in writing the book, um, realizing how much was unknown about some of these things. So hydrogen vehicles, um, there is actually um, 
hydrogen vehicles that are already uh, functional for large vehicles like uh, mm-hmm. buses and, and large trucks because hydrogen is a gas. And so, as you can imagine, you know, something that's a gas is a lot less dense than something that's a liquid like, like uh, you know, oil, sure. which is less dense than something like coal, you know, which is a, a solid. So the problem one, on one hand is, um, you know, these large tanks. And what I'm really the, the good thing about hydrogen, though, is it's completely clean, renewable, and storable. Uh, the problem with electricity, of course, we're having is with the batteries and the, and the recharge. And hydrogen can be recharged, you know, in a matter of seconds mm-hmm. uh, if it's set up properly. So hydrogen, for a, from a long-term standpoint, you know, has a lot of advantages. But, of course, there's no infrastructure. So it's not really realistic to say, tomorrow, let's start going with hydrogen vehicles, even if the technology was ready. Well, and don't tell Governor Schwarzenegger that because one of the first mm-hmm. things he did when he became governor was initiate this hydrogen highway project. So we're going to have to connect the dots, Susan. I'm going to have to connect you mm-hmm. with some friends at, at Cal EPA who deal with the governor every day um, in talking about exactly that, the infrastructure to put in hydrogen vehicles as a viable solution, you've got to have the infrastructure. And so exactly. in your book talks a, a lot about the infrastructure necessary and, and who might fund that, how it might be uh, you know, worked out in terms of partnerships, yeah. public-private partnerships. So I would encourage everybody to get that book, Beyond Lightbulbs. Go to beyondlightbulbs.com and check out all the research and the information that Susan has on hydrogen vehicles and, and most importantly, what infrastructure would be needed. I mean, we have a new president coming in. He's talking a lot about infrastructure. Maybe that can be something you can uh, advise him on, Susan. That would be great. Well, while we're still on transportation energy, let's talk a little bit about ethanol because it's come under fire by critics. I mean, after this was included in the energy bill of 2007 that Congress passed, uh, it was one of those fuels that we were going to say, okay, 15% of our of our fuel supply is going to come from ethanol. It was subsidized. Um, but then it came under fire for a couple of reasons. It doesn't produce a whole lot of energy uh, in terms of comparing it to other fuels after you take into account how much energy it takes to actually produce ethanol. And then there were critics who said that ethanol fuel competes with the human and livestock food supply. So educate our listeners on the pros and cons of using ethanol. Well, the biggest thing is there's, what, about 250 million cars on the roads today? Um, you know, we have to... If we really are going to get rid of our dependence on oil, you know, foreign oils in particular, but you know, um, we we have to deal with transportation, and with all those existing cars, we have to do something to um, you know have them go you know, basically. Mm-hmm. So so ethanol is the easiest thing without somebody having to invest in a completely new. Again, there's the vehicles, there's the the fuel, and there's the infrastructure. The infrastructure it can use the vehicles. Um, it can use for the most part or with mo- minor modifications. There's lots of vehicles already out there that are flex fuel. Um, but, you know, there's the easiest transition is really an alternative fuel. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason that it makes sense. Now, with anything that's brand new, you find out what's not working and then you fix it. And I think that's, you know, we, we have a, we kind of do that in all kinds of areas of life is that, oh, it doesn't work throw it out and start over. But, uh, no, we just learned a lot. You know, like, like I, Edison said with the light bulb, you know, I just learned to, you know, all, all the ways it didn't work. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so ethanol, well, we, we know we can do cellulosic ethanol. We can, you know, use other forms. There's wet and dry um, forms of, of making ethanol. There's lots of efficiencies that will come into it with any new product. I mean, my background is I'm an engineer for with business process efficiencies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you start any new product, any new uh, process, it's inefficient at the beginning. But over time, you become more efficient. So I think what we have to do, because we've got those existing vehicles, is we have to find a way to make the alternative fuel method work. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and from my vantage point, it's kind of hard for me to believe that, you know, the folks making this policy on ethanol didn't kind of foresee that this would have an impact on the food supply and food prices. And while we can go, whoops, my bad, it, it did, there are folks who are, you know, in other countries having food riots because there's not enough who, you know, felt the, the effect of our tweaking in terms of ethanol. Um, and, and so I wonder, with the flex fuel vehicles, is it worth the research and development money to make this intermediate step? Or in your opinion, Susan, should we just go to the automakers and say go straight to petroleum-free vehicles? Well, what you just said, actually, the the, the thing about the um, the policies and standards make a big difference in driving things, you know, especially with R&D-related things. Mm-hmm. And what we have is a renewable fuel standard, which ethanol is a renewable fuel, but it doesn't say anything about clean. And I make a real distinction between clean and renewable. Renewable is it's basically replenishable within, you know, I, I say within our lifetime or, you know, within a short period of time. And clean is it doesn't have any of the emissions that, um, you know, we're having troubles with. Right. So, Really, if we had had a clean renewable fuel standard, it would have probably driven things more towards electric and hydrogen vehicles, which really do, you know, address all the different um, considerations. That's a so that's great one point. Thing. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and I haven't heard that put exactly that way. There's a difference between renewable energy and clean renewable energy. That's a great point. And if you were going to advise our next president on what caveats he should place on the, if any, maybe none, but if you were going to advise him on any caveats that he should place on the auto industry before they get that bailout money in regard to fuel standards, what would you advise? Well, one thing I would say is that something has to be done to convert existing vehicles. The focus is all on the new ones. With 250 million existing vehicles, you know, we're not all going to buy new vehicles, nor should we buy new vehicles and scrap off the old ones. I think there should be a real focus on converting existing vehicles to new either alternative fuels or alternative sources, and there's ways of doing that. So that's really? where I think some some needs to be put. And then, of course, uh, with as I say, with the, the fuel standards, it should be clean and renewable. I love that. You know, and, and that's one of the things that – you're just not hearing much, but to the average consumer who's feeling the pinch of the economy, who's not going to buy a new car, and, you know, bless all the folks who are, who are you know, sellers and, and financial brokers of cars. I know that their industry has been hit very, very hard. Um, but the fact is that that's a really untapped market. You know, selling products to people who aren't going to buy a new car but want to convert their existing vehicle to be able to use a cleaner alternative fuel. That's a great move. I well, hope we'll think about it, Elect Obama is listening to this. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, really, I, if you think about it, you know, what with the cost of a business, I mean, there's not as much material cost. If you're converting existing vehicles, it's a lot of labor. So, huh. and, and, you know, the, the labor is, uh, you know, the, the existing uh, car uh, dealerships and so on, they can be the ones doing it. 
That is so brilliant. I love that, Susan. I hope everybody listening to Go Green Radio writes a letter to their congressman and senator to say, hey, this is a great idea. We're going to give all this bailout money to the auto industry. Let's come up with a solution to retrofit their existing products to be clean and renewable. Folks, there's so much more we're going to talk to Susan about after this break. So don't go away. If you want to call in and ask some questions, don't be shy. We're so nice. It's one 866 472-5788. We'll be back right after these breaks with more Go Green Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. No excuses, no delays. If you have goals you want to achieve or changes you need to make, then it's time to take charge of your life with America's change buddy, Nancy Christie. This show will help you lead a more productive and fulfilling life starting now. Take Charge of Your Life challenges you to expand your sense of possibilities. Take Charge of Your Life with Nancy Christie is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America. Let change be a positive force in your life. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to more Go Green Radio. I am so excited about our topic today. Susan Meredith is blowing my mind. She just came up with this great kernel of wisdom that I have never heard anybody else say. Maybe there's other people saying it, but this is the first time you've heard it on Go Green Radio. We were talking about the auto industry, and we're, you know we want to use less oil. We want to be less dependent on foreign oil. So how are we going to fuel our vehicles? Um, and we've talked about electric, hydrogen, other forms of, of fueling our cars. But I asked Susan right before the break, if you were advising our new president, President Obama, on what kind of caveats should be in place before the auto industry gets all this taxpayer dollar subsidized bailout money, what should those caveats be? And she said, you know what? Wouldn't it be a great idea to be able to retrofit existing vehicles to be able to handle alternative fuels? 
How brilliant is that? I mean, we all know folks aren't out there buying as many new cars as they used to. And if we could convert, if I could convert my 10-year-old minivan to run on an alternative fuel, I would do that. I would make that investment. So I'm happy to welcome back Susan Meredith, author of Beyond Lightbulbs, Lighting the Way to Smarter Energy Management, back to Go Green Radio. Susan, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> well, your book is fascinating, and I find your your approach very pragmatic and a little on the sassy side, which I love. In the opening chapter of Chapter 3, you say, and I'm paraphrasing here just a little bit, but you say, is there global warming? Is it caused by human humans? Who cares? And for all my green friends out there who are listening whose jaws just hit the floor by the fact that I have a guest on who says, who cares if humans are causing global warming? Explain what you mean by that. Well, it's a waste of human energy to debate it. Um, when, I, when I speak about topics, I like to find out a little bit about my audience. And when I first started speaking about these topics, I'd say, you know, how many of you believe in global warming and is there anybody who doesn't? Because I knew if, if they didn't believe in it, if I had an audience that was resistant, they weren't going to want to change anything. So I needed to kind of address that first. And, you know, there were always people who didn't and were willing to argue about it. But the fact is we can't do much about the past. And, you know, we do that too much in life in general. You know, you can't fix the past, you know, so it's useful to see what happened as a way to learn about how to do something different. Um, I used to carry something around, actually, in my purse. It was, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And I, <laughs> and I like that. Yeah, yeah, it, was some, it might have been Henry Ford, actually, but somebody wrote it. But, um, you know, really, that's the, that's the only reason to look backward is to see how can I learn from it. So we know CO2 is a problem. We know it needs to be reduced. So instead of debating how it was caused, let's put the brain power to reducing CO2 regardless of how we got here. I love that. It's so pragmatic. And by the way, folks, we emit carbon emissions with all the hot air that we <laughs> that we spend talking about this. I, I love the idea of saying, okay, whatever happened, happened. Today's a new day. Let's begin again. Let's do what's right for the future, regardless of what happened in the past. Let's just get real here and start fixing the problem. Um, whether or not you know, it was humans or some natural phenomenon that caused what's going on right now isn't important. What is important is something we can all wrap our heads around, which is waste not, want not. Uh, if we stop wasting things we don't have to, and we get smarter about the things that we need in order to make our economy go and our standard of living great, um, then that's really what we need to be focused on. In your book, you mention things like reforestation and carbon offsets as ways that we can mitigate our carbon footprint to include all the hot air that we emit when we're talking about these topics. Give the average everyday American some practical tips for ensuring that they're part of credible efforts in reforestation and carbon offsets. Well, first I just want to say you can start on a personal level. Um, my dad is a big gardener, and he has been for years and years, and this is a plug for him and all the gardeners out there is plant things, plant trees and flowers and food crops and, you know, grow local, whatever, because you know, we consume oxygen and produce CO2, and trees and plants consume CO2 and produce oxygen. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural balance between the two. So anything you do to green the planet, we, when we say, you know, make the planet greener, it's like literally too. So, um, but, you know, for people that don't have the time or the land to, to do that themselves, you know, put your money towards the offsets and, you know, that's whether it's globally or locally, you know, sometimes I think it's kind of good to do it locally because you're going to get the benefit of the oxygen produced by plants in your local area. 
And, um, you know, and that's good, but of course, I mean, on a bigger scale, we need, uh, we need to make sure reforestation is done on a, on a large scale as well. So yes, that's, that's a good thing to do. Well, and I have found, you know, and I live in Northern California, Pacific Gas and Electric is my utility company. They have a very credible carbon offset program, and, and it's validated. You can be sure that the, the funding that you put toward that, basically what you do is you give maybe four or five dollars more on your electricity bill each month, and they make sure that that goes towards planting uh, rich, you know, carbon sucking down plants. I mean, whether that's trees or what have you. Now, there are carbon offset programs out there that frankly aren't credible. So I encourage anybody who's considering uh, investing in carbon offsets to ensure that you're dealing with a credible source. And and if you're interested in finding out more about that, email me at gogreenradio at gmail.com and we'll talk. But that that's, that is a very interesting topic. I mean, it's kind of like closing the loop. When we talk about even recycling things, we talk about, yeah, it's great to recycle, but then you've got to purchase something that's made of recycled content so you close the loop. Um, this is kind of the way of closing the loop on carbon emissions. It's great to reduce uh, your carbon emissions, but when you can't get down to zero, then you can offset through some reforestation and carbon offset programs. Now, Susan, in your book, you talk about the effect that an increasing population has on energy demand. And I think that we can wrap our heads around this linear equation of more people equals more demand for energy. But talk to us about the effect of the world's energy supply or on the world's energy supply when more people want to live better, want to live more like we do in America. I mean, we live well, and it's understandable that people in other countries want to live well, but it's not just about you know, the population increase, therefore we need, you know, we have more demand for energy. It's also the population is increasing and they want to live better and there's an effect on the world's energy supply. Talk to us about that phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a real big thing and I think some of why people resist um, getting into, uh, almost resisting wanting to find out sometimes, but it's where efficiency becomes so important. If And efficiency does not mean deprivation or lack at all. It's just, you know, it's a way of life, and it's you know, it's doing something. For my, my mom was raised on a farm, Mary Claire Bardo from Bradford, Illinois. And when you say you're from Illinois, you may—I don't know if you've ever heard of it—850 people, but she <laughs> lived. She just lived efficiency. I mean, and we were raised with that. And so, you know, it's just kind of a way of life, but it's not deprivation or lack. And, you know, to me, lighting is a perfect example. I'll get on my soapbox here, really. Light bulbs, beyond light bulbs, but light bulbs too. You know, you want light in your house, and a 60-watt bulb can be replaced by a 13-watt fluorescent. So simple math tells you you're using 47 watts less. That's about 75% less electricity for the same lighting, okay? With a 3-watt LED, would be even better. But not only that, incandescents waste energy through heat. You know, it's like... You know, back to getting energy into the right form at the right time and right place. You know, mm-hmm. the electricity that goes into it, an inefficient, inefficient incandescent produces about two percent light and ninety-eight percent heat. Mm-hmm. Now, that's oh. not heat that's going to heat your cold rooms. It's trapped under your lampshade. Right. So we're spending money on electricity that isn't giving us any value. So efficiency is the key right now. I believe more important than anything, and it's something every individual can do to be able to provide more function to more people without overrunning the world energy supply. Well, and we know that 1.6 billion people on the planet Earth do not even have electricity. And I think a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners might not even realize it's not that they just can't turn on the light in their room. Um, There is a direct nexus between 
having electricity and having something simple like clean water. In your book, you talk about how water utilities actually are one of the largest users of electricity. So talk to us about this nexus between available electricity and things like world poverty, world hunger, and, and the, the geopolitical effect of, of, of everybody having electricity. But how do we spread that, that capability and that energy around? Right. Yeah, one of the reasons I mentioned water is because people don't realize the importance of being efficient with water as, that, as well. Uh, you know, really reducing all forms of wastefulness, anything, it means, you know, you're, you're getting more energy without getting, you know, uh, you're, you, you know, you don't want to use more energy unless you're getting additional value, you know, so you're going to be helping. So, I mean, water is one of those situations where, you know, if we are more efficient with water, we're more efficient with electricity. But electricity, um, is really the key to the quality of life. And this I really got from Buckminster Fuller. I'm kind of a Buckminster Fuller um, follower. And, well, if you've ever gone camping, you know what it's like. You know, I mean, in real camping, not, you know, pulling an RV in and plugging in an echo, into an electrical outlet. But I mean, <laughs> real camping, um, 1.6 billion people on the planet are essentially camping out every day. And that's pretty tough to function, you know, with. You know, I, we always go camping. Um, you know, there's a renewable energy roundup in Fredericksburg, Texas, which I've been going to for years and years, and we always camp out when we go there. And I spoke at it, you know, uh, a couple times. And <laughs> camping out and going and getting ready to give a talk is a real challenge, you know. Yep. So, so, you know, we don't realize how tough that is. But if you look about electricity and the world problems, I mean, if you don't have electricity, you don't have any means to purify and pump water, you have no refrigeration for food and medicine, you have limitations on the types of shelter and how to build them and limitations on sanitation and transportation and education and security, no TV, radio, cell cell phones, iPods, Game Boy, I mean, none of that. And that's the way 1.6 billion people live. Amazing. And and. You know, when we talk about electricity, we, we can't ignore the fact that much of it comes from fossil fuel-fired plants, um, and that creates carbon emissions, of course. And one of the most reliable sources of carbon-free electricity that does not rely on sunshine or wind is nuclear. And so the question becomes, are we going to have to build nuclear plants in third-world countries in order to get them clean water? You know, the actual quantity of what we have to build is really up to a lot of different things coming together. You know, if we are efficient, um, you know, for instance, you know, again, I'll, I'll get back to light bulbs. If you, if we replace a single incandescent bulb, it'll keep a half ton of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And if we got rid of, um, everybody got rid of their energy, you know, started using energy efficient lighting, we could stop using uh, 90 average size power plants. So, I mean, we can reduce the need for energy, first of all, and just want to, you know, highlight that. But then, you know, when you do look at the different kinds, I mean, nuclear has the benefit of being clean. Again, clean versus renewable. It does have the benefit of being clean. But really, then there's a section in there about toxicity and what toxicity means. We're going to talk more about that in this last segment of Go Green Radio because this is a this is a hot button topic: <laughs> nuclear, electricity, third world countries. Yes. We're solving all the problems of the world right now on Go Green Radio, folks. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. They say it's from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote, and then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Do you know what the most complex piece of your business capital investment is? Is it the technology? Is it the infrastructure? Could it be the office and corporate structure? The most complex piece of your business capital investment is the human being. Return on Human Capital is a unique program that discusses some of the most important issues facing leaders in business. Join your hosts, Howard Pines and Jay Santamaria, for Return on Human Capital, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to more Go Green Radio. My email is going nuts because we said the magic word, nuclear. Yes, we're going to talk about it on Go Green Radio because it's the elephant in the room so many times. Um, before we went to break, we were talking to Susan Meredith, author of Beyond Light Bulbs, Lighting the Way to Smarter Energy Management. You can pick up her book at www.beyondlightbulbs.com. But we were talking about nuclear energy. We were talking about the effect that having electricity all over the world, could have on people's standard of living. Um, we were talking about the 1.6 billion inhabitants of the planet that don't have electricity, and it's not just that they can't turn on a TV or a light bulb. Um, that inhibits their ability to pump and treat clean water to their homes. It's, it's much, much more than being able to play you know, video games and, and have something to plug it into. It's really about quality of life and world poverty. But the question remains, Let's say that we all become super-duper-duper energy efficient in the U.S. We save all kinds of energy. We've got all this you know, excess electricity supply. That doesn't mean that everything we save makes its way to Kenya or makes its way to Zimbabwe or wherever we have third-world developing countries that lack electricity. So are we going to go over there and build coal-fired plants 
and pollute their air to give them clean water, or are we going to build nuclear plants so that they have carbon-free electricity, or what can we do? Susan, help us solve the world's problems. How do we get electricity <laughs> to third world countries? Well, it's, it is about, um, again, being efficient with it, and um, the other thing is using the resources that are available at any particular place, like hydro, you know, is, is an obvious one, and geothermal is an obvious one to use where that's possible. Um, and the other part of it is uh, we can be efficient in the, once we generate it, like power plants don't go to sleep at night, once we generate it, we, there is the technology available to create global energy grids. I oh, think most people know by that. Yeah, what, what's a global energy grid? What would that look like? Well, it's um, it, in the book. I have it's it's something a Dymaxion map, which uh, Buckminster Fuller actually put together, and it shows the map in a different way. And it shows how well probably most people from the uh, elections actually know now that um, we are very close to uh, Alaska is very close to Russia. You know, it's only three miles between land masses, and so it's very easy. I'm not to touching collect that one. <laughs> I'm not touching that one with a ten foot pole. But you're right. <laughs> The people didn't used to know that, but this map shows it very well that we could co- connect the whole world with high voltage power lines, you know, if we wanted to. And then when we go to sleep at night, um, the power, you know, power uh, plants are still running, but it's wasted because we don't use as much energy at night. But it could be s- shipped over to other places that are awake during during that time frame. So we can be more efficient also on a supplier level as well as on a consumer level. I mean, you've got to wonder, who's going to pay for all that? I mean, that's worldwide infrastructure. I mean, we squabble in the U.S. over whether it's federal dollars, state dollars, or local dollars that fix potholes and build schools. I mean, you, that's the su- subject for a whole new show, but it, it strikes me that of all the things I've heard coming out of the UN, that's not something I've heard them talking about. Maybe they are, but if they are, I think we all need to know about it. A global energy grid and infrastructure would be a great idea. Now, some folks are kind of placing their hope in energy storage devices. I mean, instead of running power lines, you know, around the world and over the sea, um, what about, you talk about three different storage devices, batteries, fuel cells, and ultracapacitors. Educate us on, on those energy storage devices. Well, they're all di- they all have uh, their different pros and cons, you know, like anything. And so, again, it's using the best resource at the right place at the right time. So fuel cells, um, they don't have any moving parts. They don't have any combustion, so they can be very, very reliable. That's the, the reason that they're really uh, wonderful. Um, ultracapacitors can be um, – they can withstand a lot of charge-discharge cycles, basically. They can provide quick bursts of energy, so they're very good for those kinds of things. And then, of course, everybody knows what batteries are. You know, batteries, you know, the the problem is that they're they're toxic and they're they're chemical, uh, you know, so we have to find some way of dealing with that, but they are very good for, um, you know, storage as well. So it depends on what we need them for and what, uh, but there's, and there's combinations of putting some of those together. Um, so those are kind of more on a transportable level. But there's also um, pumped hydro, which is, uh, you know, using the uh, hydrogen, uh, excuse me, not hydro, hyd- hydro being water, hydropower. You know, if you, uh, on the off-peak times, if you pump water up higher and then you let it basically be like a waterfall, you know, and, and use that energy during the, the high demand times, that's one way of doing it. Or there's also compressed air energy storage, which is a way of using compressed air in um, 
you know, utilities use that. So there's lots of different things that can be done, um, you know, to store energy, and that's kind of like the um, holy grail, I think, of, of energy in general, you know, finding good ways to store energy. Mm-hmm. Because that's well, something that electricity doesn't have that oil has. Is right. I mean, we could put up solar easily. panels around the equator and capture a lot of solar energy, but then there's no transmission line to get that anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, if we could, if we could put that, that solar energy from the equator in a battery and then ship that around, um, that would be a, a great solution, you know. Then uh, we, could, we could actually uh, create a trade market for countries. I mean, let's face it, around the equator, a lot of them are developing second or third world countries. That would be a great market for them to, to be able to sell. But, you know, we've got to be able to fund the research and development for these storage devices, and that. You know, that's part of the, the situation that we find ourselves in, the reality of the economics of this. But you talk about global cooperation in your book and level that, that, frankly, we're not seeing right now. For instance, you talk about how sand in third world countries could become a trade item of value that could be purchased to make silicon, which is a component in solar panels. I mean, do you see and do you think that such a systemic solution is truly possible? I think systemic solutions are imperative. I, I think we have to look at and actually I really talk about this being an opportunity, not just a crisis, but an opportunity because there's lots of things in our world that haven't been working and, you know, there has been an imbalance of, of energy and, and resources and so on or, or uh, and I think we have an opportunity to solve a lot of them. So it will actually solve some of the, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the wars and things like that. So, Yes, I think it is imperative. It's definitely possible. That is the way we have to be thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just you know, health is a system. Our, our body is a system. We have to look at it holistically. A house is a system, and and this is for everybody. You know that you know, look at your house. The whole energy picture of your house. You need to understand the overview of that. You know, and I see. You know, I, I keep looking. My husband, you know, whose background is a builder, he's also a great speaker and, and trainer, but um, he his background is a builder as well. We've been looking at, you know, what do we need to do to get people to make the changes because we are the first, you know, it's not about the utilities fixing it or the gas and oil companies fixing it or, you know, anything. It's, it's really all of us doing our part. It's systemic. This is systemic, including each one of us is part of that system. Well, and, so, and you know, and that's a great to... point because at the end of your book, you've got kind of the honey-do list for everybody yes. from the president to the postman on this subject of what we can do. <laughs> In the few seconds that we have remaining, give us a couple of tips to our listeners. We've got about 30 seconds before we close. Give us two things that everybody could start doing today to solve this problem. Well, reduce waste, meaning reduce your electricity use that you don't have to use and reduce waste. Even one more. Recycling. Give us one more. Look at your house as a, as a, uh, a system and change your light bulbs. <laughs> change your light bulbs. And, folks, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. We're going to have Susan back for more Go Green Radio another day. But if you've got comments, you've got tips, email me at gogreenradio at gmail.com. We'll be back this time next week with more Go Green Radio.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. 